Well, happy Easter, Christian Fellowship Church and friends and family and guests. Uh, what a joy it is to gather together on the Lord's Day. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day. Really, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. Um, but many of us uh, come into church with various struggles. And I think Easter is a, a well-placed time to celebrate uh, because we're coming out of winter. We're usually coming out of winter. Today, thankfully, it seems like we're coming out of winter and things are springing, flowers are budding, and we're thinking of bunnies, and there's pastel colors that are bright, and they're, it, it's, it's a whole vibe, as they say, right? It's about newness, and it's about life. And uh, I, I, I want to remind you that Easter is about that, that Easter is about coming out of a kind of winter, a kind of darkness, a kind of uh, hole, really, uh, where there's no light, and stepping into the light. That's what the resurrection is about. And God has prescribed a particular way to keep that as our focus. If you are struggling with stuff, right, things that uh, weigh you down, anxiety, depression, um, things you can't let go of in the past, uh, or just things around you, you know, the economy, your job, or your lack thereof, um, relationships, your marriage, the things that you struggle with. God has prescribed something to help us with that. And that particular something, it might surprise you. If you've been here the past, I don't know, year or so, it probably wouldn't surprise you. But that, one of those things that God prescribes is communion. Communion. Now, I was thinking back, this month, I've been here 16 years. 16 years. I don't think we've ever had communion on Easter. But recently, we moved to a model where we take e communion every Sunday, and we're not going to skip it on Easter Sunday. And the reason why is not because I want to dig my heels in. It's supposed to be every Sunday. Communion is a resurrection meal. It does reflect on the death of Christ, but it also reflects on the resurrection of Christ. And here's where it touches on what I just talked about. With your pain, your struggle, your trauma, your difficulty, that might be an inward thing. It might seem like an outward thing, but both of them have to do with what we are proclaiming in communion. So we're going to take it after the message because I want to set the table so to speak, so that we can take it not just with the reflection backwards looking, but the reflection forward looking, that resurrection hope. But it's a package deal. It's a communion. Communion is a meal of remembrance and hope. But you don't get the hope part without the remembrance part. We don't get Easter without Good Friday. You don't get resurrection part without the death part. And for some of us, we kind of skip Good Friday and just do the Easter thing. I don't mean which service you attend. What I mean is in your life, theologically, right? What you think about life. You, we want the hope to get out of the despair, but we don't want to understand what it really takes to get out of the despair. So we're going to see communion as these two pieces but the emphasis is going to be on, on the hope piece, but we've got to get the remembrance piece first. Turn with me to a passage we visit frequently in this church, which is 1 Corinthians 11. 
1 Corinthians 11. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, all you need is a phone and Google 1 Corinthians 11. Something, something will come up, right? Uh, you can use an app, you can use a tablet, uh, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians. In the New Testament, Paul is writing a, a messed up church. You know, th- this church, talk about struggles and despair and difficulties. This church is one big dysfunctional family. Okay, they are arguing over who their favorite preacher is. Uh, they are celebrating sins. They are taking communion and getting full. Imagine somebody comes up here and just grabs an entire tray of bread, an entire tray of the cup, and they're just knocking them back, right? And then the person behind in line doesn't get any. That'd be absurd to us, and that's kind of what's the kind of stuff that was going on here. And he goes 10 chapters explaining very difficult things, and then he starts talking about the gathering. But the gathering is important, and how you think about the gathering is important to how you live your life. And in that gathering, one of those important things is communion. And if you understand this right, it's going to help you not be a dysfunctional family, not be a dysfunctional person, not be someone who's stuck in darkness, but someone who lives in the light. So when he does that in 1 Corinthians 11, the first thing he does is remind them that communion is an ordained meal. You may have heard the term ordinance. We don't say Eucharist here. We we don't say sacrament, but we do say ordinance. And what that means is it's ordained. Look at the verse in, uh, uh, well, let's start in, uh, let's start back up in 17 just to give you some context. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, for the worse. There's the problem. So he's giving them instructions and they're not listening. They're not doing it right. Okay. Now drop down to 23 and he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, etc. We're going to get into that, but don't skip over. I received something from the Lord as his apostle, as his messenger, and then I delivered that to you. Paul uses that kind of language when he talks about doctrine, the gospel, the things he doesn't want you to compromise on. And so communion is not an option for the believer. It's an ordinance, meaning the Lord handed it to the apostles, the apostles handed it to the church, and this is why churches have practiced communion all these years. However, God is not an arbitrary boss. He's not the kind of parent that only gives, barks out commands and there's no reasons for them. It's just do this, do that, and there's no reasoning behind it. There's always a reason behind what God does. And he provides the reason here. Why did God ordain the meal? Right? It's not just to sustain you through really long church services. You know, I'll give you a little something, but don't take too much, you know. Now, that's not the idea. It's an ordinance received by Paul from the Lord, and then Paul delivers it to the church. And it's an ordinance about something that if we forget it, we become like the Corinthians. That's his point. When you forget this, when you miss this, life starts getting ragged really fast. And so he takes this thing that he delivered to them, and he's reminding them you're supposed to understand the core of this thing. And you notice he doesn't go into what color plates they should be in, whether you should come forward or whether the plate should go out. Those are different things that churches do differently. But he gets to the core of the issue. Verse 23, he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So you remember the night when Jesus was betrayed, that was Passover night. So what Jesus was doing was taking the Passover meal, which the Jews was ordained for the Jews as well, to remember how they got out of Egypt. Okay? So some of you have to go back to, you know, if it's been a while, go back to the early Sunday school, or if you have to, a Charlton Heston movie, or a DreamWorks movie, you know, go back and remember that Death was passing over the land, and because if you had a sacrificed lamb with its blood on the doorpost, death passed that household over. So Passover means you were covered and protected from death landing on you. But the the reason why death didn't land on you is because death landed on something else, an innocent lamb, okay? So Easter, you see lambs, and there's lamb cakes and lamb pictures everywhere. That's, That's the theme, all right? Something else took the death, so death passes over me. That was what was being celebrated in that night. And Jesus, while he was being betrayed, literally was telling his disciples, hey, I'm the Passover. I'm the one that takes death, so death can pass over you. And so communion is reconstituting that idea from Passover. This is why, in 24, he says he had given thanks. That's why you would give thanks in Passover. It's remembering. It's remembering what the Lord did so you can get out what the Lord did so you can get out of your slavery to sin, of your darkness, of your lostness, all of that, to get out, to escape the condemnation of death. So Jesus provides that with his body, and then he wants us to take that bread, remembering what it took to get out. So he says, do this in remembrance of me when you take the bread. In the same way, then he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant, a covenant relationship with God, that is signed, so to speak, in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's sealed, not on our performance, on Christ's performance. That's the difference between this kind of covenant and what we might think of as a contract. Because if you make a contract with somebody and the other party fails to uphold their end, then the contract is void. This is a one-way covenant, and it's never void unless the blood of Christ is void. But the blood of Christ is never void. And so it's a new kind of covenant that is sure And this is a covenant in his blood, Jesus says. And do this as often as you drink it. Every time you drink it, you do it in remembrance of me. So remembrance two times. And it's a a backwards-looking memorial. You look back and you realize Jesus Christ accomplished something to get us out. He accomplished forgiveness on the cross. I'm not sure if that's still something you need today, if you're still stuck in Egypt, if you're still stuck in the dark. Um, But the table is open to you through faith and repentance in Christ. It doesn't matter what your background is or how far you are or how long you've been putting it off or how many times you said you would follow the Lord and then you didn't. Uh, this This is something that each of us comes to not based on our own spilled blood or work or sweat. It's something you come to based on the blood of Christ. And so it's open to anyone who comes in faith and repentance. So that's the backwards-looking piece, and you don't leave that behind. In fact, it's to our detriment if we leave that behind. In other words, 
We come in, lesson one is Jesus, he died on the cross. Yeah, we get it. And now I need other stuff. Now I need more stuff. Paul's like, no, no, no. When you come together, you take the meal and you remember this. This is why y'all are crazy. Not you. I'm saying him to the Corinthians. Some of you maybe are crazy. I don't know. <laughs> hey, hey, Corinth, this is why you guys are wild, okay? Bring it back to the basics. Let's start with communion, guys. He goes to communion before he goes into spiritual gifts, right? Uh, and, and addressing speaking in tongues and he, before he goes into uh, his entire bit about love being the most excellent way. Before unpacking all that, he unpacks communion. And we might be tempted to be like, yeah, yeah, communion, yeah, yeah. You know, and for those of us taking it since we were very young, it's like it's, it, it can maybe feel routine. He's like, hey, it's a meal of remembrance. Meaning, if you forget this, you're going to lose your compass. You're going to lose your way. Do not forget what this is all about. This is about Jesus Christ providing that Passover so we can escape the condemnation of death. And that's a memory that we never want to lose, so we keep it in front of us with the meal, see? We keep it in front of us through remembrance. But it's not only about remembrance, it's also about looking forward. And this is easy to pass up, but look at verse 26. Then he says, you eat the bread in remembrance, you drink the cup in remembrance, and then 26, these are Paul's words now, says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, there's the thing that we're remembering, until he comes. Now how's somebody who died coming back? How's it possible for someone who was crucified and put in a tomb to come back? Resurrection. If you were thinking, is this a trick question? No, it's not a trick question. That's the answer. Yes. Right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the word resurrection, but that's what it is. How do you proclaim someone's death until that person who experienced the death returns? Resurrection. So, we have a resurrected Christ whom death did not hold. Death could not contain him. And so he defeated death, and by defeating death, he will return to defeat death for all those who have uh, repented and placed their faith in him. So you see that the meal looks back in remembrance. Here's what Jesus accomplished, but it also proclaims that accomplishment until another accomplishment, which is Jesus returning until Jesus comes. So there's a hopeful expectation that Jesus is going to come back. Easter reflects back on Good Friday, but also looks ahead to the book of Revelation, which if you're interested, we're moving through chapter by chapter uh, on our regular Sundays, which we're taking a time out today. So Jesus Christ got us out of Egypt and will get us into the promised land. There's the past, there's the future. And just like Passover, you would look back, here's what, here's what Jesus did, and here, here's where he's going to take us. But in the meantime, we're in the wilderness. And how do you survive? You survive on the daily bread of God. And communion is a part of that meal. It's reminding us what it takes to make it. Not, I can do it, I'm so great. It's Jesus accomplished something, and he's coming back. And so we remind ourselves of that accomplishment on the cross to fortify us so we make it to the end, and we expect him in his coming. 
As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, every time you take communion, you proclaim, it's a message, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Think about this for a moment. I didn't really plan on this, but just real quickly. We oftentimes make communion so private and interior, we don't think about how it's not just communion this way, but it's communion this way. Who are we proclaiming this to? The people around us. When you eat that bread and you drink that cup, you're proclaiming something to the people next to you. The other people taking, the other people that aren't ready to take yet, okay? Guests, family, regulars, the people around you, we proclaim something to each other so that the meal is actually a message. The meal is a message. You proclaim messages. And so when we eat that bread and we drink that cup, we're proclaiming not just the thing that we're remembering, but we're remembering that we do that looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, This shouldn't really surprise us. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 26, I'm not going to eat this meal again until I come back and have it with you again in my Father's kingdom. Remember that? So he's like, I'm going to have this first one with you, and I'm going to come back and have that final one with you. In the meantime, keep having this. So there it is again. Right in the meal is built in this first coming of Jesus, what he accomplished, and then looking forward to that second coming. It's, it's hopeful. So if we take communion and we only drill down on the forgiveness part, I mean, that's great, but if we don't think about the forward-looking part of what is coming, it's, it's hard to dig into that hopefulness piece. And that's what I want to try to unpack quickly with you Uh, this morning that it's not just a meal of remembrance it's also a meal of forward-looking hope let me give you five ways it does that and then we'll take communion together five ways that the meal of communion helps us look forward in hope and the first one the first reason why the resurrection hope is central to communion how communion helps us with our forward-looking hope is this idea of judgment in 27 to 32, which we'll read in just a moment, in 20, verses 27 to 32, Paul tells them, hey, look, you have two options. This is my version. We'll read his version, his perfect version in a minute. All right, All right my blue jeans version. You have two options. You can judge yourselves now and be judged by God now, which is kind of a pain in the neck, let's be honest. It's a pain in the neck. We'd rather forget our worries, forget last week. Let's just talk about positive things. Many people flock to churches that will only say positive things, will never tell you anything wrong. You got stuff on your face and they're just like, you're beautiful. They're never going to, you can't trust that person, right? Okay, they let you go out looking like that. That's messed up. Well, that's your option. You can, you can dodge that and then be judged in the end or you can live in a judging way. I'll explain that. I don't mean judgmentalism, because the other extreme with everybody that walks into church, you're a sinner, you did this, you did that, your dress is too short, okay? That's, not, that's judgmentalism. But he's saying you can just dodge judgment now, but then you'll have a final judgment later, or you can live in judgment now and escape final judgment later. Those are the two options. Look at it in verses 27 to 32. This will be the longer one of the five, and then the others are are quicker. He says, 
Whoever therefore, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So examine yourself in the eating and the drinking. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let me just explain that really quickly because it's, it's dense. What he's saying is, when you guys are acting crazy, pushing each other out of the way, again, not you guys, CFC, because this has not happened here, it's craziness in Corinth town, okay? Pushing yourselves out of the way and having so much, gorging yourself on so much communion that some people don't even get any, okay? When you guys are acting like this, celebrating sin in your church, refusing to discipline people in your church that are, that are sinning in ways that are hurting other members and breaking up families in the church, and you're just like, hey, but he's a cool guy, though, you know? When you guys are acting like this, right, God is going to step in and do something about it because he wants you to make it in the end. He'd rather you take some pain now to wake you up, and maybe some of the pain you're coming in here this morning with, God's allowing that in your life to hopefully wake you up. What are you going to do now? Are you going to come to me finally, or are you going to keep trying to do this on your own? Paul is saying some of them got sick. Some of them even died. Staying, digging their heels in that stubbornness. But the Lord is using those things to try to wake them up and catch their attention so that they don't get judged later. So Paul is saying, when you come and take communion, we should examine ourselves and, and say, Lord, like the psalmist, examine me. Is there a wicked way in me? Is there something messed up in me? Hold up a mirror to me and let me see it so I can kill it now. So I can kill it now. I don't want to come to church and do pretend. I don't want to come to church and just hear positive things. And I don't want to look in the mirror and just convince myself that everything's perfect. I want to look in the mirror and see what's crooked. I want to fix what needs to be fixed now. And that's what communion helps us do. It it helps us examine ourselves. It goes, okay, how am I really doing? Where am I really? Am I really a Christian? Or is that just what I put on my dog tags when I fill out the form for the military? Am I a believer or is it a religion? Examine yourself. And other people can't really do that for you. That is an interior aspect of communion. So if we, verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. In other words, God wouldn't have to discipline us now. He won't have to introduce some hardship in your life now. Those of you who are parents, have you ever thought, Lord, save my child And I pray that they would come to the Lord without hardship. But if it takes hardship, save them. I pray to God it doesn't take hardship. But if it takes hardship, save them. And if you haven't prayed that yet, you might want to consider it. And many of us here, if we stood up here and told our testimonies, we would tell testimonies of how life was grand, life was great, and it wasn't until it fell apart, like the prodigal son sitting in the mud, wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating, and then he came to his senses. God does that. Sometimes he lets us get our face in the mud so that we can wake up and go, no, I need to be judged now, because if I'm not judged now, I'm going to be judged later, and that's the one you don't want. That's why he says, when we are judged, verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
You're like, I thought we were talking about hope. This is an awful lot about judgment. Listen to that line again. Listen to that line again. We are disciplined now. The training, the difficulties, the hardships, the things that God uses to wake you up. Now, so that later we're not condemned along with the world. Later, all the people that ignored it, all the people that ignored God, all the people that lived their best life, whatever they wanted to do, all those people that dodged being judged now, I don't want to come to church, it's so judgy. All right, so you'll get judgment later, right? Those people get condemned later. The people who come before the Lord now and go, I deserve judgment, but Jesus took that judgment for me. And when you enter that relationship as a good father, the father keeps chiseling things away, okay? That kind of self-reflection and examination and judgment that we experience now means that we don't get the, the judgment and the condemnation that the rest of the world experiences later. I hope you understand how hopeful that is because it's the reverse of what we think. We think living a life of judging and right and wrong and rules and how I'm supposed to do things is so cumbersome and oppressive and we feel like it's greater freedom to not have rules and to not be oppressed by do this and don't do that and does my life look like this and I come to church and ah, I kind of feel guilty and I don't like that feeling and you keep dodging that. It's like the person who's got tumors protruding through the skin and will not go get an exam. Or you can say, yeah, there's things that need to be removed. Where's a place I can have good surgery, surgery happening, right? And in, in the church world, it's a place where other people recognize that there's one healer and we all need him. You don't want a place where they think we're all healers and, you know, we're, this is only a place for people like us. No, this is a place for people with diseases that need to be removed and understand only Christ can remove them, and we want that now. We don't dodge it. We want that now, and we look forward to a time where we won't battle with that anymore, and there is no more time of self-examination. There is no more time of sitting and holding the communion cups and examining yourself. Did I grieve you this week? Is there something to chisel out? There won't be any more chiseling, and there won't be any condemnation. It'll be freedom fully realized when we are not condemned along with the rest of the world. So there's the first major point that he immediately goes into there. Let me give you four more really quickly in chapter 15. Fast forward to chapter 15, and we'll finish our time there. These are quicker points. First one is we judge ourselves now in communion. Why? Is it uncomfortable? Sure. But it's because we don't get condemned along with the world later. Then he circles back around to this resurrection theme, this hope that we have, what happens when Christ returns. He comes back to that in chapter 15. And one of the things he hits on is that Jesus Christ has a glorified body in his resurrection. So when we take the Lord's communion until he comes, he comes physically. Sometimes Christians say, uh, yeah, Jesus was a man. Incorrect. Jesus is Amen. And if you go back to the, the book of Acts, when Jesus ascended, he ascended in his physical body. And the disciples are up there, you know, staring and, and two men in white robes show up and they're like, hey, what are you staring to the sky for? Go do what he said. He's going to come back in the same way he went up. A physical return of Jesus Christ because he is fully 
man. He's always been fully God. Christmas is when we celebrate him taking on humanity. But we don't have another celebration where then he casts off humanity. And that's definitely not what Easter is. Easter is the resurrected Savior, and he comes back in this glorified body. What does that mean for us? It means we get glorified bodies. Hallelujah, those of us who had a hard time getting up this morning, right? In in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if you continue to read this chapter, you see what he means by first fruits is Jesus Christ's resurrection is the first wave, is the first instance, is the start of many resurrections, meaning all those that are in Christ are going to experience a resurrection. And like he explains to the Philippians, we get bodies that are glorified like Jesus' body was glorified. I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, If I'm going to be able to dunk finally uh, and play some basketball, but then everyone will just dunk. They'll probably just raise the hoops. It'll be 20 feet hoops now, and I'm like, thanks. Um, I, I don't know what it would be like if I'm hiking and I, and I trip and fall off a cliff. I know I'm not going to die because the glorified body doesn't die. Do I just bounce off the bottom or do we just never trip? We're just so good. There is no such thing as tripping. I don't know. I do know that the life that we live now characterized by aging and failing eyesight and curving spines and arthritic fingers and all the depressing stuff that comes with our frail bodies will be removed. So when we eat that bread and we drink that cup proclaiming his death until he comes, we recognize that death purchased new bodies, resurrected bodies. And if that sounds far-fetched, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ, yes or not? If that miracle happened, he introduces other people into that same miracle. So we look forward to that final state, which is a physical experience. We do not live in heaven forever. Heaven is a holding place. We are looking forward to Christ coming and issuing a new heavens and new earth, which are physical realities that we'll experience with our physical bodies. Okay? And there will be sports, and there will be technology, and there will be trees, and there will be hiking. Not floating on clouds playing harps. If you thought, ah, heaven's kind of boring. That would be boring if that's what Scripture said our eternal experience would be. Thanks be to God, Scripture does not say that that's what our eternal experience will be, but it'll be a physical experience, but with bodies that aren't decaying, aren't full of allergens. Uh, No, like, oh, I have to read the label because I can't eat that. Oh, I might break out. Oh, I need my EpiPen. No such thing then. Praise be to God. Then he says in verse 24 uh, that all enemies will be defeated. Then comes the end when he delivers, verse 24 of chapter 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So what is happening when Jesus comes? What have we been reading in the book of Revelation? He puts down all enemies, all wickedness, all kingdoms that rebel against him. He puts them down and ushers in one kingdom that we get to be citizens of, and there's perfect peace, and there's no more persecution. There's no more beheadings. There's no more Christians getting hauled off to jail. There's no more shootings, mass shootings. There's no more assassinations. All, right? All of that is put down, and so we look forward to this uh, perfect reign of peace with Christ. Verse 26, number 4, verse 26 says that he defeats death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
So Jesus Christ will finally put an end to death, which is different than just thinking about our glorified bodies. This is thinking about you don't get to enjoy your glorified bodies for a little while. You get to enjoy your glorified bodies forever. There's no death looming over you, okay? So those of you who've experienced, like you can't wait for your birthday, and then you forget what age you are, and then you hate your birthday, there's no more of that. There's no more of that. You're going to be like, man, today I'm 2,046 years old. That's awesome. Because you're not thinking about how the clock is winding down. You're not thinking about how much sand is left in the hourglass. You're not thinking about regrets as to whether you lived your 20s to the fullest or did you do your teenage years right or can you get your 30s back. There's no more of that when death isn't looming over you. There's no life insurance. There's no estate planning. There's no how am I going to leave my stuff to anybody. There's none of that because death is finally and forever defeated. Finally, number five, when we take the Lord's communion, we look forward to not just his, uh, the glorified bodies and his defeat of all wickedness and kingdoms and not just the fact that he wipes out death, but it's also our motivation for holiness. Look at verses 32 to 34. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So he's saying, what's the point if there's no resurrection, all there is in this life? Why would I endure persecution? Why would I do the difficult thing? Why wouldn't I just eat and drink, and who cares? Because we all just die tomorrow, and there's nothing else behind the curtain. But if there is a resurrection, and there is something afterwards then we shouldn't be deceived. Verse 33, bad company ruins good morals. What he means there is the, the, the people in the church that are like, ah, eh, there's no resurrection. He's like, that's bad company. You want to be surrounded with people who know there's a resurrection. In verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So he's saying you're hanging out with people that aren't thinking about the forward part and you need to be hanging around with people that do think about the forward part. We're going to have glorified bodies. Death is going to be defeated. We're going to reign with Christ forever where there's no condemnation for those in Christ. If I'm truly holding on to that, what does that look like now? It looks like holy living. It looks like pressing into the things that you're supposed to do, not being deceived and not going on sinning like you don't care. We do care because we care about the rescue. And then he says in uh, uh, verse 58 at the end of this chapter, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. No resurrection? Who cares what you do now? If there is a resurrection, then you're investing in that now. And all the labor you do is not in vain. Nothing you do here is a waste of time if we're looking forward to Christ's coming. But if Christ isn't coming, there is no resurrection. Paul is saying... Honestly, it doesn't matter what you do, but it does matter what we do. And the times where we are feeling weak and feeling unmotivated to live for the Lord, it's because we're thinking about today and tomorrow and yesterday, but we're not thinking about when the Lord comes. So what can we do to remind ourselves, hey, the Lord is coming. All those promises are going to be true. Communion. Because we don't just proclaim that he died. In communion, we proclaim that he's coming. 
and we proclaim his death until he comes and finally wipes out death for good. Some of your struggles are interior ones, your guilt, your uh, trauma, some pain. Some of them are exterior ones, joblessness or uh, something happening around you, the political scene, whatever. But I tell you, if you fix the first one, then it gives you the right perspective on the second one. And that's why the two cohere. We do it in remembrance of what he took care of on the cross, and that should take care of your inward struggle. That should take care of guilt and condemnation that transforms you as a person, but it's also proclaiming the Lord's coming, and that's our outlook on life. Our hope is not in politicians or policies or pastors. I can't think of a fourth P, but I'm sure there's more, right? But our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in what Jesus is able to provide, not just in the cross, but in his coming. I'm going to pray, and then we'll take communion together. Father, we're thankful to you for the simple but profound truths of uh, your word that proclaim to us uh, the meaning of Easter, the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we get to have life in Christ. And so we pray now for those of us who Uh, We'll take communion now. We pray that as we eat that bread and we drink that cup, we'll remember uh, this Passover rescue that we've been brought out of Egypt, but that we'll also proclaim that looking ahead to the coming of Christ, that we don't just get left abandoned in the wilderness. You will bring us into the land of promise. That is our hope. And so help us to take these elements, not just in confession, but also in hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.